Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 140 interviews in this podcast series, all of which you can enjoy on the aarecoveryinterviews.com website and on all podcast apps. My guest on today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews is Cassie M., who joins us from Nairobi, Kenya, where she recently celebrated seven years of sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. Raised amid the pomp and circumstance of the diplomatic corps, Large formal parties were a weekly occurrence in her family, and she learned about alcohol's importance early in her upbringing. Spending her high school and college years in America further developed Cassie's abilities to drink and function effectively as a budding alcoholic. Her career roles as a leader of note in a number of humanitarian organizations around the world placed her squarely in the middle of a lifestyle in which she could control people and situations around her for many years, despite the use of many escape hatches along the way. But as Cassie's disease took firm hold of her life, she found fewer and fewer means of escape from the cruel realities of being an alcoholic woman. By the time she found AA in early 2017, the repeated beatings from the disease had finally made Cassie teachable. She found a good sponsor, worked the 12 steps, and allowed the program to envelop her well-being. Despite the many challenges she has faced during her sobriety, she has found comfort in the program and faith that her higher power will provide what she needs to remain vital and effective in life. Cassie's story of seven years of sobriety is insightful and encouraging, especially for those whose functional alcoholism kept or is keeping AA at bay. Listen carefully for the next hour or so, and you're likely to find many similarities in Cassie's story, and much hope for future success in AA. So please welcome my friend and AA sister, Cassie M. Hi, Cassie. Welcome to AA Recovery Interviews. I should say good evening, and it's good morning to me, good evening to you. You're, what, nine hours ahead of me here, here in, <laughs> in the other side of the world in Kenya? Um, yeah, just outside of Nairobi, yes. Nairobi. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you could do this today. Now, I was referred to you by, is it your sponsor, Tilda? Yes, Tilda, yeah. She's your sponsor. She did a really wonderful interview. I met her through a meeting in London and sounds like you may be from the same area. Am I on the right track? No, I'm not. I'm not English at all. I'm actually um, American Kenyan. American Kenyan. <laughs> I went to high school and college in the United States of America. Oh, you yes. did. So yeah. you, you grew up in Kenya and then came over to the U.S.? Mm -hmm. I grew up, my, but my parents were both American. Um, and then my father was a diplomat. And then I came back to Kenya after finishing college. They wanted me to experience a bit of the United States. So I did that and came straight back. What did you think of the United States? I enjoyed it. I then worked there more recently. I actually got sober in the United States. So um, I, I went back to the United States for work because um, I wasn't able to, I wasn't getting the right jobs where I wanted. And I sort of had to step back down and, it happened to be in Atlanta, Georgia, and you can't drink and drive there, and you've got to do all these things, and there's lots of AA, so, um, yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, the international convention was in 2015 in Atlanta, Georgia, and it was it was an amazing opportunity to be with 60,000 other AAs. We kind of took over the city. Mm. <laughs> Now, how long have you been sober, Cassie? What's your sobriety date? Um, February 26, 2017. So I'm just coming up on seven years um, in a week or a bit. Oh, congratulations on that. Now, was that period in 2017, was that the first time that you attempted to get sober or one of many times? It's the first time I recognized I had a problem that I needed help uh -huh. or that help was a possibility um, and that I tried that AA was on my options. Mm -hmm. So I had tried to stop drinking before that by willpower and that didn't work. <laughs> and I tried for well, probably about 10 years like daily saying I wasn't going to drink today. 
So for a 10-year period, you knew you had a problem with alcohol, and on a daily basis, you were you were reminded of that, and you made attempts on your own to try and get sober, but it never caught on, did it? Yeah, never worked. And, and I was a bit surprised when I got to AA, and there was a whole chapter written about me, and you know, more about alcoholism when it talked about all those different things. Um, and that was me. I tried every single one of them. And I would debate in the morning and I would start out the morning quite good. Um, and then through the day, um, you know, working, there would be something. Um, and I would, yeah, but before the end of the day, I would have gone gotten enough booze to get me to the state I needed to get to that night. I, to sleep well was really what it was about. I was very stressful. I needed to sleep well. Yeah, and yeah, that's the case for a lot of people. It's Are they falling asleep or are they passing out? Sometimes it's a fine line. I didn't know that word blackout until I came to AA and I realized I'd been blacking out every night. You really learn a lot from AA, don't you? A lot, a lot, yeah. <laughs> let, yeah. let me ask you, uh, what did you know about Alcoholics Anonymous before you actually pursued uh, your sobriety within the program? So I didn't know much. I knew, so when I was younger, there was alcohol in my family, but mm-hmm. it was one of those things that we you drank socially. There was always wine with dinner. There was always cocktails at 6 p.m. Um, and it was about your ability to control and manage it, and that made you into a a suitable adult. Um, and I had an aunt. So my mom had two sisters and the younger sister, she was an alcoholic and it was sort of frowned upon. Um, and when we moved to the U.S. when I was 11, it was shortly after that. I remember my mother having to go to Alcoholic Anonymous meetings because of her sister who couldn't manage it. Um, and, you know, I knew my grandfather was an alcoholic and my grandmother and there was a lot of alcohol around um, and I sensed from, you know, very early in my drinking that there was something with me, but I was going to be different. I mm-hmm. was going to manage it. I was going to be that strong, independent woman mm-hmm. that had a career and, you know, could control these things that those weak people couldn't do because it was all about hard work yeah. and honesty and perseverance. Um, yeah. And so I was going to be OK. I was going to I was going to lick this one. <laughs> Now, what was there that you were thinking at 11 years old about alcoholism? How did you view it as an 11-year-old? And what was told to you by the grown-ups at that time about what was going on in the family with regard to the alcoholism? Um, That it was somebody that was somebody who couldn't manage their alcohol was weak. Mm -hmm. Um, They were less than. Mm -hmm. Um, My grandfather even taught me um, how to drink. He said you should always drink um, beer, wine or whiskey so you know what you're drinking and to always avoid things like rum or vodka unless it was neat. But anything that would hide the alcohol because then you didn't know and it could sneak up on you. So it really was about controlling it and managing it. Um, And that's what, you know, we did. Um, we were a family that drank um, and we were professional, you know, service oriented family that we gave back to our communities and to our country. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and alcohol was part of it. And it was just a matter of managing and controlling it. Yeah. Big part of the culture, I would expect, too. Yeah. How many siblings do you have? So I have one full brother who grew up with me and then a, another half brother, but yeah. Okay. Now, did your brother have a different a different idea about what was going on? How close were you guys in, in terms of your understanding of what was going on within the family? Um, my brother was probably on the side that it was weak um, and it's about lack of discipline. Um, mm. He was the boy that did everything right. He was a top student. He was the... Um, you know, the one that got straight A's. I was the one that was in the headmaster's office getting into trouble. Um, and so I think we could complete opposite sides of the, the viewpoint on, on most things in life. Yeah, I was the one that pushed things, challenged things. He was the one that accepted things and did was told. For him, he would definitely be in agreement. You know, you're weak if you can't manage it. Um, and that's something that did You know, later in my life, when I would sit there and think, why can't I manage this? Why can't I control it? I would think of my brother and I'd be like, well, we have the same genetic information. So why? You know, but he's disciplined. He's that top student. He's the the good guy. You know, and that would would reinforce my, Okay, you don't have enough willpower, Cassie. You don't have enough discipline. It's your fault. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because he's one of those people. Mm-hmm. He can order like one of those designer beers, uh, stout or whatever. I don't know. You know, those IPAs and have it at lunchtime and like have half of it and then go on with the rest of the day. Hmm. And that's just, you know, infuriating. And you've got somebody the same same family as you that does that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's always that sense of I've got to be able to show the family that I can be like him or I can be like the person in the family who can handle their alcohol. And it never quite mm. works out that way, does it? No, no. But I so I in in response to that, I I proved that I could do a lot more. So I could prove that I could you know, go work with the Rwandan refugees and manage multi-global organizations and millions of dollars and that I was better than, you know, I always just had to prove that I could do more extreme things. Yeah. Isn't it, isn't it interesting how we, we get into those situations when we're just little children and then we spend the rest of our lives trying to get in favor with the people who pass judgment on our behavior at that time. And it just, it, sometimes it just doesn't work out. How old were you when you, when you first drank? I, I, you know, I don't remember my first drink the way some people do. Uh-huh. Um, I remember having a beer with my father down at the, the the coast, the beach where you'd go in the holidays, and there was a there was a roving disco. Mm. Um, we would go as a family, and I remember sitting on his lap and having a beer, you know, not liking the taste of it. Um, but I grew up in um, a diplomatic setting with at least once a week or every other week. 200 people in our house having a cocktail party. There were bars and alcohol, and I was probably tasting those at that time. I remember making our own cocktails with like Coca-Cola and Sprite and things (laughs) together. But, you know, we were probably doing them with booze as well and didn't like the taste of that and preferred the one with just the Coke and the Sprite and the Fanta. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was around me at all times. My mother drank while she was pregnant, while she breastfed me. Um, it was yeah that sort of generation. <laughs> Actually, that's a story that I've heard more than a few times. Uh, kids who were ra- raised in a family where one of the parents was a bartender or owned a hotel or something like that, or constantly uh, entertaining people. And the kids played at drinking or the parents taught the children how to mix drinks for the adults. And it was all very cute at the time, but it sent a certain message to the kids about drinking in general. What kind of messages were you getting as you were watching these cocktail parties go on and all this drinking in a social uh, setting? I mean, that it was sophisticated. It was what successful people, it's what leaders did. I mean, Mm. I had presidents and ministers and ambassadors in the house doing that. So mm-hmm. that's what successful, powerful people did. Yeah. Um, and also I was taught again, you know, I go back to like what my grandfather taught me, but even at home when we did have dinner as a family, we were, there was always wine with dinner mm-hmm. um, and, you know, white with fish and chicken and red with meat. And you yeah. learn those things. Yeah. And we would have some small, you know, we'd have a wine glass and we had these, I remember these sort of smaller ones that were for us. And it was about managing it and controlling it and, you know, being able to do that. Um, So wine was part of sophistication. It was part of power. It was part of success. Alcohol was was ingrained in that. Hmm. It's quite an extraordinary way to feel about alcohol before you really know how to feel about it. (laughs) When was it that you first started drinking on your own accord or on your own volition? Um, I remember in grade school, so what it would have been, well, 14, 15, having some parties. Mm -hmm. And I remember having some booze and a friend that we would go out. And I had my cousin's fake ID. We lived in um, Washington, D.C. at the time. And at that point, if you were 18, you could get into a bar and drink beer and wine Mm -hmm. and then over 21 for hard liquor. So I remember and that would be before I went I went away to boarding school at 15. Mm -hmm. um, And there I started partying big time. Um, So it would have been before that, that we were going out to bars or sneaking. I remember a a spin the bottle game and a bottle of vodka at one point (laughs) at this grade school. And I left that grade school at 15. So, (laughs) and I would have been organizing, orchestrating, planning. I would have, that's the sort of person I was. Yeah. So you were, even at that early age, you were becoming the organizer, the planner, the, Mm -hmm. the party thrower. So yeah. you were you were kind of the leader of the pack, so to speak. Leader of the pack, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the first times that you 
drank to inebriation, what were the effects? Did, did you, how did you feel immediately after you were drinking? And what was there about that experience that made you want to do it again or not do it again, but you did it anyway? You know, I, I have trouble with that question. I hear I, my, so my mother used to say to me, if you drink for the taste of it, you're not an alcoholic. And if you drink for, for the pleasure you are, there was something like that. And so I would often think about that and going, well, I drink because I like the taste or, <laughs> or whatever it was. So I can't possibly be um, an alcoholic, you know, and I don't remember it necessarily being something like all of a sudden I felt, you know, part of or included that I hear other people say. I was always a very social person, like I said, a ringleader. Um, you know, I did come from a different culture. Um, by the time I started drinking, I did have a funny accent that people thought was strange. I didn't understand a lot of the cultural things. And maybe I need to unpack it more, but I don't necessarily feel that that's why I drank. I mm -hmm. just, I liked it. Um, I enjoyed it. And I just kept doing it. Is it safe to say you drank because you liked the way it made you feel rather than the way it tasted? It was in my, I'm so traumatized <laughs> with what my mother used to say that I don't dare answer that. I just don't have. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a tough one. I drank I liked because both. I liked the taste. I liked, but I was never able to tell you what was a good wine or what was a bad wine or any of that. No, but, um, you know, there's. I think the, the, the two go together. That, mm -hmm. that taste of a cold beer or a cold glass of wine for me is yum. Yeah. So once you were in boarding school, were you hanging with a particular crowd that, that drank yeah, I should have read the message. So like my second week I was there, um, my academic advisor said to me that he didn't think I was hanging out with the right crowd um, and doing the right things. And he was worried about me. So I changed my academic advisor hmm. um, and I carried on and I, I did. Um, I partied a lot. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at first it was sort of Wednesday, Saturday nights. By the time I finished um, high school, we had a system, another girl and I, who is also in and out of recovery, I just discovered she and I had a system of getting a half gallon bottle of vodka that we would mix with um, Pepsi from the soda machine downstairs. <laughs> oh, and we drank pretty much every night that I remember our senior year. And we were kind of invincible then. They couldn't throw us out. There was eight of us girls that all lived together. And we were between us, like the top student, the top athlete. It was a small number of girls. So they couldn't throw us out. So we were kind of just did what we wanted. They tried to sort of warn us. Um, but we just had a good time. And I kept my grade average to just passing. Mm -hmm. um, so I was sort of coasting along. Um, I had the wildest naughtiest boyfriends as in the ones that were probably on the trouble list mm -hmm. and i dabbled in um different drugs um too much to the point to say that by the time i finished um high school i didn't really touch many drugs after that at all um yeah i just narrowed my focus down to alcohol that i could control <laughs> that was about control for a lot of us when you drank did you drink to uh blackout were you able to handle the um, the hangovers and the effects of having drank a lot the night before? So I used to say when I drank that I didn't get hangovers mm -hmm. and I could carry on just fine. I think I hit a lot of that in, in the later years. I remember, um, you know, probably the last... 20 years that I would have sort of that reflex in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, and that was just something else that couldn't possibly be the alcohol. I ignored or, you know, stood firm against any headaches or any sort of hangover feelings. You know, I did. I so it was in denial that I was having any repercussions from the alcohol. And I used to, I remember I used to have Coca-Cola days. So I could just describe how bad my days were, was how many Coca-Colas I would have. Because I refused to take any sort of aspirin or headache medicine because that would admit that I had a hangover and that I wasn't managing my alcohol. Huh. So, And to the point that I hit, I, I didn't realize I suffered really badly from migraines. Um, and it wasn't until I got sober that I understood that these were not strange hangovers that happened at weird times of the day. 
um, that it was actually another whole other phenomena. Yeah. Hmm. What kind of consequences did you have to face with your family? It was just Cassie. Um, Cassie was always the troublemaker. My brother Ian was the good boy. So it was just Cassie again is how I took it. I vaguely remember my mother saying to me a few times, you need to be careful with how you drink. You know, we have alcoholics in the family or something, something to that. Um, My mother was she might have controlled it at a bit, you know, of her life. Um, and lived in sort of white knuckling misery. Mm-hmm. Um, but she definitely in her latter years um, manifested all signs of being an alcoholic. And interestingly enough, compared to my brother and I, I was the one that recognized it and was able to sort of just say, hey, look, stop hiding the boo. She's going to get it. He kept trying to hide it from her and control it. Yeah. So I think it was just, yeah, to that question, it, just, it was Cassie. Going on extremes. Um, And I had cousins that were naughtier than me and more of troublemakers. I was the youngest in the line of of my mom and her two sisters' kids. So I never got thrown out of school. Mm -hmm. Um, I got suspended a lot. I was never the lowest grade average. I was the second to bottom. Um, So I just sort of keep going. Yeah. Sounds like you kind of floated right beneath the radar in the family. In the rule breaking, yes. Um, and then, you know, just tried to get the attention maybe somewhere else, like in my antics and my, you know, so for example, my first year of college, I went off and I left college and went to the desert and hiked with people and studied the Anasazi instead of doing my, you know, chemistry and math classes in, in, in college. So I was sort of always just doing one one more extreme thing, one more different thing. So that behavior followed you into college and throughout your college years? Throughout my entire life, yeah. <laughs> I'm just now in sobriety trying to address that. I'm like, ooh, let's be a normal person, whatever they are, yeah. That's a lot to address too, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> there are a lot of years involved here between your college and when you got sober. And what were the hallmarks of those years during that period of time that might have let you know you had a serious problem that should be dealt with as opposed to just ignored? I suppose I remember one time that I didn't drink and I was actually in hospital mm-hmm. um, and due to a bad car accident. And I can mm. remember that's one time I didn't drink you know, or like bad bouts of malaria. So, I, you know, I drank pretty much consistently when I look back at that time, you know, very few days missing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I look back as well, my career, my lifestyle I chose. So I worked in the humanitarian nonprofit, so going and saving lives, being the hero, um, and working in very difficult locations or war zones where drinking was normal. We were living a stressful life. You had to have some sort of, you know, um, solution to it. And also people were moving constantly around. So you didn't have a fixed set around you that could watch you. So you might party with Cassie one day and then go off and do something normal. Cassie was partying every day. Hmm. Um, but I, I moved and I used to say I just have an eclectic set of friends or colleagues. I don't hang out with one crowd. But what I was doing was keeping um, not letting anybody close to me. Mm-hmm. So that I could, you know, drink and then adjusting my entire career to a career where I I could drink. In your private moments and quiet times, did you ever take an introspective look at that? No, I drank. You drank. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. That's that's a perfectly normal response. And and, uh, I often think about the times that I drank and had the opportunity to stop and become self-revelatory about why, my, why I was drinking and why my behavior was as it was. And I stopped for just such a short period of time that I never really had much processing of that information and would just continue to drink and use drugs. Sounds to me like the work you were in and the lifestyle you were leading lent itself very handily to never stopping drinking. Yeah, so the times that I, in the last 10 years... Um, where uh-huh. I got more deliberate about it. Um, I had been I'd been in some quite senior jobs um, and I was had this super, you know, arrogant attitude about who would employ me. I was I was, you know, everybody wanted me to work for them. I could, you know, work anywhere and I could push the buttons of the organization to my limits at that point. And sort of when that was starting to crumble and I wasn't being employed and I was realizing I wasn't that invincible um, is when I really started 
trying to to stop and and talk think about it daily. I never got. I mean, one week I kind of I managed like Wednesday, Thursday, and then when I drank Friday, I had a really bad hangover. So I was like, well, that doesn't mm-hmm. work because if I don't drink during the week, it's like a mini detox, and so I can't drink on the weekend. But I only I think once I got like three weeks. But I never, I never even succeeded at any of that. Yeah, I never went to like a Buddhist retreat and tried to detox that way. I never tried to detox for Lent or any of those things. I um, I just pushed things, and so like, you know, in more about alcoholism, and it talks about you know doing more more sports or more athletics. Mm-hmm. I I did that. I like I went up and signed up for a marathon, or you know, I would push myself to an extreme that way. I tried to add vodka mm-hmm. to the regime um, to make it different. But yeah, I never had any of those sort of meditative, reflective thoughts about, um, you know, my life is falling apart. I get that. Yeah, until I went to a, a doctor and I was feeling pretty low and I had a slight twinge of depression. So I was living in, in Atlanta um, in a in a small basement flat doing this job. And I was my job was that the flat was justified because I wanted to be near the park and it was just transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to the doctor for an annual checkup. And in that, I actually said how much I drank. You know how they always ask you, and I actually was honest. And she said, well, given the amount you drink, if you want to lose weight, not if you want to stop drinking, you're going to have to stop drinking and you're going to need help. Hmm. And I was like, help? Like that concept of getting help had never been there in my life. Um, And she pointed to a book on addiction. And I knew I was an addictive person. I knew that already. Um, It's one reason like cocaine was something that I never got near or heroin because those were addictive drugs. (laughs) Sure. Um, and so I, you know, I recognized it, um, and I went to a bookstore to buy that book. And then I checked out some other books in the bookshelf. And one of them was about living, living in sobriety. Um, and it told me to go to an AA meeting. So I went to an AA meeting. (laughs) This is seven years ago. This is going on. Yeah. Seven years ago. Okay. So right up to that point, you had been what I think is often described as a functional alcoholic, somebody who can hold down a job, maybe even do great things on a daily basis for months and years at a time and still be able to get drunk. And as long as they're sufficient in their jobs and and actually performing well, people not only leave them alone, but it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I can do all these things with impunity and not have to worry about the effects. Yep, exactly. And I was always the first in the office, so there couldn't be anything wrong with me. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's nothing. And I, I rode my bicycle to the office, so there's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> you don't have to worry about a DUI. <laughs> That's what I did. So when I moved to Atlanta and I knew about these DUIs, I got a bicycle. Um. <laughs> so along the way, you were acknowledging the fact that you had a problem, but because of your ability to function with that problem... There were all the excuses in the world for you not having a problem. I mean, that's what's so enigmatic about being a functional alcoholic. I know for me, the very fact that I could do really well in school, I could perform at my peak, nobody bothered me about the drinking or the drug use. And so how can one possibly have a problem with alcohol if they've got so many outward signs of success and achievement? Yeah. Sounds to me like that might have been what happened for you too, huh? Yeah, exactly. I think until I got to the point where I was pissing enough people off with my my arrogance and my way of working, yeah, just sort of belittling other people. Uh, I do think there's a gender role there that, you know, maybe an older guy could have gotten away with some of that. But as a woman, you're supposed to be compassionate colleague. Um, and I was just completely self-will run riot. I, I went through a series of very bad bosses, and that was another serious indicator for me. I just kept mm-hmm. getting these bad bosses, incompetent. They didn't know how to manage people. They didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> um, and there was I a did, common denominator in there, wasn't there? <laughs> <laughs> there was. Me. Um, and I actually, the only time I sort of slightly went for help was I had another colleague who did she she mentioned she she did coaching. I didn't really understand what that meant. And so I went to her and I said, you know, Claudia, I really need your advice. Um, I, you know, I just can't deal with this person. She's, and she knew I said, she's, you know, she's, she's 
stopping me from performing at my best. She's just a bad boss. And I keep getting these bad bosses. How can I manage them? Can you give me advice? Can we work together? And she said to me, she goes, how... Oh, you really have a, a strong understanding of um, self-awareness, Cassie. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, I have a really strong self-awareness. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, and like nine months later when I was sober, I was like, oh, she was not being serious. Um, but that was like the only time I'd ever thought of getting help in my life, besides the fact that I was blaming everyone else for being a bad boss and there was nothing wrong with me. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds to me like there may have been opportunities along the way that were being pointed out to you that you were either overlooking or finding other justifications why it didn't apply to you. Yeah, I, you know, I've heard in meetings and from other people, they talk about, you know, people kept telling them they needed to get help. People kept directing them. And in early sobriety, I'd be like, why didn't anybody do that to me? Why didn't anyone guide me? Why did I not know about this? Um, and then I've later realized that as I just had the blinkers on. So people might have been telling me. Um, I did um, talk to a colleague about two years ago, and he said, you know, and he referred back to that that time when I was really quite a, a difficult person. Um, and he said, you know, you were applying for certain jobs and you weren't getting them. But, you know, we gave you such good feedback and, you know, I see that you eventually listened to it. And I said, I never got that feedback um, because the person hmm. giving me the feedback was supposed to give me the feedback was was scared of me. I just intimidated people. Hmm. Um, and so he never gave me that feedback. I made it such that nobody dared get near me with any feedback or any any comment about that I might not be amazing. <laughs> Yeah, so it sounds like you set up some barriers that were quite impenetrable at Big the time. Ones. Yeah, yeah. To not only getting help, but being able to see in yourself what so many other people were seeing in you already. Mm. Yeah, that's that's tough. That's tough. So you you go to the bookstore, you get this information. There was this tiny window of opportunity when the doc said something to you. It sparked your curiosity. That curiosity became a trip to your very first AA meeting. Was that simply as a result of seeing that in a book? Yeah. yeah. Really? Interesting. The book, the book explained that it was not my fault. I was not weak. It was not about my lack of discipline or my lack of you know, ability that I had this disease. Sounds like that lets you off the hook pretty easily, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it said, you know, go to a meeting. Um, and I walked into this meeting and they didn't, you know, same story. They did not look like me. They did not talk like me. It was a bunch of old white men in, in Midtown Atlanta. Um, and they hugged me and they gave me a big book and they said, keep coming back. Um, and at first I was like, right, but you know, I'm intellectually superior. So I don't do the God stuff. I, you know, I know more than you. Um, you know, I'm one of these global people. I'm not like you. And then, you know, by day two, I was listening a bit more. Um, by day three, I was listening a bit more. Um, and I keep I, that's that's the biggest thing that changes. I started listening to other people, you know, some of them sometimes, you know, I still I'm like, yeah, right. And then two hours later or two days later, I'm like, oh, yeah. You know, so I still have that stubborn streak in me, but it was about just believing that these people had something, even though they weren't sort of the people I would want to hang out with. They had something um, that I wanted. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. 
What were you, what were your expectations when you came in at, at the beginning about what was going to be able to be done for you? And were you expecting it to be done quickly or what was your thinking on all that? I knew I just had this my life was unmanageable. I knew I had this problem. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I'd gotten this glimpse at a slight bit of feeling depressed. And that scared me because that's, I'm not, you're not allowed to get depressed. That's, that's not done. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. that's weak. <laughs> and so that sort of pushed me to getting a solution, finding whatever these people had suggested. And maybe I thought it was going to be the easier way. I just have to go to this meeting. I mean, the book made it sound kind of easy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I came in, um, it all was extremely daunting. But when they said, just come back tomorrow, I was like, okay, I can do that. Um, and I was in a daze. I was in a complete daze. I don't know how in that first meeting I raised my hand and said, hi, I'm Cassie. I'm an alcoholic. Hmm. Um, now I look back on it as a truly spiritual experience that my higher power had me there and was pulling my hand up and making me speak. Um, That's the only reason I can explain that I walked into those meetings looking back on it, but I had no idea that was going to come. And in fact, for the first long time, I was like, that bit I'm going to skip. I tried a um, We Agnostics meeting Mm -hmm. um, because I wasn't going to do this, you know, God thing. Um, And I didn't like that. So I went back to my 545 meeting with the guys and I just kept coming back and I turned my addiction into AA. Um, so I was too important to do 90 and 90. By the end of the week, I, you know, the Saturday at the end of the week, I got sober on a Sunday. The Saturday I went to eight meetings. Um, so. <laughs> like volume could do it, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think I guess in answer to that question, I wanted it quick. I wanted it sorted. I'm not a very patient person. It's something I'm dealing with right now. My higher power is not operating on my time schedule. And I'm getting really annoyed. What kind of relationship did you have spiritually, let's say, growing up and into the years during which you were working and drinking? So I was raised by ethics of hard work, honesty, integrity, Um, Mm -hmm. You know, getting up early with the sunshine, I suppose, you know, the true sort of wasp Protestant sort of beliefs. Um, And I did um, go to church, um, but I also went to a missionary school for a bit and and experienced some extreme um, racism in that school. And so developed a strong hatred towards organized religion Mm -hmm. uh, and saw that in my professional career as I worked in different places. Um, so a skin tingling allergic when people would say, you know, um, God bless you or, you know, um, inshallah or any of these things. So strong, strong hatred for organized religion. And I still, I, you know, at one point I did have sort of a, a grounding spiritual belief about doing good and helping others. Mm-hmm. But I can sort of pinpoint where that disappeared in my life. And it was probably about the age of 25 Um, And Mm. I didn't stop drinking until 52. So there was a long Mm. section in there of spiritual deadness and anything that was slightly spiritual or religion was a sign of weakness. And I would laugh. I mean, uh, God, the big book is just completely describes me. I thought I was so unique in my opinion on, you know, spirituality and God. um, But the big book describes me completely. Um, I just I mocked people that uh, believed in God, um, turned things over. Um, yeah, I thought I just thought it was for weak people and uneducated people. That sounds very similar to my, to my experience. In fact, uh, seeing the big posters on the wall with the steps and the traditions and seeing the word God in there was a big turnoff to me initially. But I was... I was so desperate, I didn't have any other where any place else to turn that I thought, well, if that's what it's going to take, then okay. But it was it was a big turnoff in the beginning. It sounds to me like the way you felt about religion and spirituality might have made that a big hurdle in the beginning for you. I was I was gonna do everything but the I remember looking at them on the wall. I was gonna do the steps that didn't have God in them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and skip those bits. And I remember um, 
first time reading the big book, like I actually had a sponsor who said, just remove the word him and God and just put something else. And she actually told me, rewrite the prayers how you want them. Um, my current sponsor did not agree with that one. She's like, who are you to think it's all on your own will? Just accept them as they are. Um but yeah, I was just going to do things my way. But there was a guy in the room that used to point. There was a big disco ball in the middle of the meeting room. And he would point to that. And he he had like, I don't know, 40 years of sobriety. He would say, when I got in here, that was my God. And I was like, oh, these guys are strange. These guys are weird. <laughs> um, but I finally learned to just accept it, ignore it. You know, when you look at the steps, it was, you know, came to believe, um, be willing that. um, But didn't say you had to do it. Yeah, it kind of eases you in there. Yeah, I got through the steps one or two times in a couple of years of sobriety with that. It's okay. I know there's something there and I'm going to respect it. Um, In fact, I was just talking to my sponsor tonight how I tested. So everyone kept talking about higher power and stuff in the meetings. And I said, well, I've got a I've got an employee that's really not performing. He's going behind his back and backstabbing me. I'm gonna and we were supposed to meet the next day. And I said, I'm gonna give this one to this higher power and see how that goes. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of handed it over in the evening um, and didn't fret and stress about it. And I walked into the meeting and I didn't I didn't know what I was doing. I just didn't talk immediately and go now. Duh, 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 duh. Mm-hmm. And he just apologized immediately about his behavior. And he said, you know, he's been on. And I was like, okay, so this higher power thing works. So I continued to sort of test my higher power to see if they would show up for me. And I still kind of do that now. I just I just got busted. You know, my sponsor's like, are you testing your higher power to see if they're going to pull through? And I was like, it kind of feels like it. (laughs) What a wonderful realization, though, to have that somebody's suggesting to you that you either pray for the person or you let go or you just turn it over to your higher power and then it works out. And there's this sense of, oh, my God, I can't imagine why or how it worked out, but it worked out. And then the next time going into the same kind of situation, we have the same exact doubts as we had earlier Mm. and are told the exact same thing. And it works out exactly the same way. And then we go into the next situation and it's just like that again. The thing I always wondered, and I've been sober uh, 36 years now, but from time to time, what comes into my mind is, why is it that God can have a 1,000% batting average, but the next time he comes up to bat, I still expect he's going to strike out? You know, it's just like, what is there in the history and in the records that would indicate there's even a chance that it's not going to work when it always seems to? So it sounds to me like you had some terrific guidance from a good sponsor. Tell me about finding a sponsor in the beginning and what it was like for you. Oh, that was really scary. In what way? Because I've avoided relationships and commitment. Um, I'm single and any relationship that ever got close to anything, um, I would break and, and run. So having to ask someone to be a sponsor, that was big. Um, so there was a woman who I really liked. I was nervous because I wanted to do, you know, people like, you got to get a sponsor, you got to work the steps. Mm-hmm. And so I was sort of pressuring myself. Um, so I did ask a woman to be my temporary. That sounded like less of a commitment. And then I was quite early in sobriety. I I made the decision to not do what you're told. Um, and I took a job. I moved. I moved. I moved back to West Africa from Atlanta. Um, so that was kind of scary. Um, but I, you know, I just, I really got all the advice from everyone and, and, and I think, you know, managed it okay. But for that, I knew I needed a sponsor that was going to be quite strict and close with me and would not tolerate any bullshit. And I walked into a meeting one day and there was a work colleague sitting there as a woman's meeting and there was a work colleague sitting opposite me. Um, we didn't work together, but we worked for the same organization and recognized each mm-hmm. other. Um, so hmm. I asked her, um, because I knew she would understand time zones and global things and where I was, you know, full of BS and trying to manipulate things and where I wasn't. Yeah. And then she, um, she then had some stuff going on in her life and just couldn't sponsor anymore after a couple of years. Um, and so I did go into a bit of a limbo. Um, I had a sponsor because I was always scared not to have a sponsor, 
mm-hmm. but he was an older guy that was like, sure, whatever, Cassie. Um, and I look back to that time of, um, you know, just my character defects on fire. Um, it was probably between year th- three and four. Um, you know, I was doing it. I was running all the meetings, doing all the service, you know, just mm-hmm. know those people. It's just like um, lots of sponsees, nothing wrong with me. Um, so I guess I now look at people like that and say they don't, they're not sober, they're dry, but they just, they are not living in serenity. So I, I, I recognized something and I was about to do, um, I was still working the steps myself. The sponsor didn't really sort of care we just chat. We chat every week. Um, it was nice, short Cassie, whatever. We'd usually bitch about people. Mm-hmm. He was in Atlanta and I was in Kenya. Um, and then I was about to do my four step, and I just I was like, "This isn't going to work. I want somebody that's going to help me with my four step." You recognize at that point the inherent weaknesses of your own program. Yeah, I wanted something, so I asked my current sponsor. Yeah, your current sponsor. To do the fourth step with you. Had you attempted the fourth step before? Yes, I'd done it three times before, but I I knew I needed a dig honest dive, yeah. So once you got your present sponsor, what was the first thing that she did with you? Hmm. We did do a dig d- deep dive on the on that fourth step, and it was it took months and it was absolutely oh, yeah. brilliant. Um you know, yeah, with my current sponsor, you know, she has a level of spirituality that's just amazing. And I've got one of those relationships, you know, where I'm still really bad about asking for help. I would never dare call her and say, I need help. Um, I might schedule our weekly call earlier or be a bit more in tune. We do do daily gratitude. So there are times when she has said, I think we need a call because she can see from my list that stuff is happening. But um, yeah, it's an amazing relationship of, you know, I, I was talking to a sponsee of mine um, last week about trust and how important it is and realizing that, there are not many people I trust in this world, but I trust my sponsor 100%. Um, and I trust one of my sponsees. I know she's going to show up. I know she's going to try her hardest. I know, you know, I just know those things. Yeah, that's a good feeling, isn't it? It's amazing. Um, yeah, that, that that this program, it's, it's, it's bizarre, these relationships, but it's truly, it's a wonderful relationship. You know, what I came to find out, Cassie, was that after doing the first 11 steps, I really did have a spiritual awakening, but it wasn't until I'd I'd done the first 11 steps in earnest. I'd been through them giving lip service to different aspects of of the steps, and everything with regard to the spiritual awakenings always seemed very hollow. It never seemed very genuine. But I remember when my sponsor had me do a real deep dive on my fourth step, and we did a real deep dive on the amends, and and we really worked the program the way it's supposed to be worked. By the 12th step, I was finally able to see how God had been working all along, and that was great assurance that all the doubts that I had about whether or not he would be there for me, he already was. He had been there and helped with all that, and I, it was just my realization that was missing. So uh, it sounds to me like you've had that you've had a very good experience with your sponsor that you're now able to pass on to your sponsees. Yeah. And it is interesting how, I mean, there is, there is some quote about the, you know, how much you put in, you get out and, you know, for, and, and the amends bit. Um, And it's not Mm -hmm. a surprise that they are the ninth step promises that, you know, that come true. And I had one amends that sat lingering, uh, one resentment of my brother um, who's already come up. And, you know, and I would go, but, but, but every time I would start, and I just couldn't think of anywhere to start on that amend. There were just decades of things to, you know, put, and there was, you know, always something that he had done too. Um, and then I was able to pinpoint, you know, I didn't show up for his wedding mm. and there was no but, buts I could come up with. I just, I, I went to a party instead um, mm. <laughs> elsewhere. It was more cool. It was more important. You know, I didn't show up for his, the most important day. So I made that amend specifically. Um, and my sponsor guided me and, you know, I, it wasn't, I didn't want to become his best friend. I didn't want to open up a lot of things. There was a lot of mistrust with him. 
confidences that he had blown with me. I wasn't ready to go into any of that. And I didn't feel the need, but I did feel the need to make that amends on that one issue. And why, you know, after doing that, the things that transform, um, it's just amazing. In your relationship with him? No, not necessarily the relationship with him, um, because hmm. he then wanted to become best friends. And I was just like, you know, no, that's it. And it's just other things in life cleared up. My understanding, like you were just saying, that, you know, my higher power is there, that I am guided. Um, you know, it's almost like every time I recognize that, um, something opens up. I feel that also with vulnerability now. I'm really... I have a really tough time admitting that um, things aren't going well, um, that I'm feeling less than, that, yeah, that things aren't how I want them. And admitting vulnerability is really hard for me. Yeah. When I do it, then I see that my higher power steps in. And so that's that, you know, me thinking that my higher power is testing. <laughs> I'm testing my higher power. <laughs> Well, it sounds to me like, you know, practicing these principles in all your affairs have had a great effect on your life. Can you look at any particular thing that's happened, let's say professionally or personally, where you can look back and see how the practicing of the principles made the difference in you getting through that situation or you becoming a different person because of it? Decisions, yeah. So short, about into two years of sobriety, I had an option to go to one job that was more of a coaching, supporting job of teams to another job where I was the ultimate boss, the director. People did what I wanted, a lot of power. Um, and I chose the second job. I chose the job that even had a bit of a more of a dead end in terms of career. But I chose that job because I didn't want when stress would happen that my ego could come in. I wanted my job to be in such a situation that I was still in the same organization, still working the same vision. But and I work in, you know, in humanitarian development work. So I was still in that work, but not in the such that um, it was feeding my ego, where that perhaps when Cassie spoke, everyone did not agree with her. I chose that job. Um, and that was definitely because of the program. And then eight months ago, I chose to leave my job. Um, and it was through a transition I had, but I chose not to stay in that sector where I have a lot of experience. I was in a very senior position, a very comfortable position, and I chose to transition out of it and go into something new. Um, and I'm hmm. still working out that something new. And it's very scary, but I did it on the faith that um, my higher power is looking out for me and I am going to be ending out in the right place where I can help others and serve and and be of most use. But it is it's very scary. And, you know, right now I have fear of economic insecurity. I've been doing a few small jobs here and there. I'm not landing that perfect job. Mm -hmm. You know, I forget how difficult it is looking for a job and how soul destroying it is. And I keep upping my meetings. I'm going to another meeting a day. I'm doing, you know, trying to do, you know, bang more of the program in because that's where I feel safe. And um, yeah, it's scary. And I feel my self-will coming in. I feel lack of trust in my higher power. You know, when you get that job rejection letter, it's like, well, you see, um, you know, I did the right things and now it's not coming through. Mm -hmm. But I have an amazing sponsor. I have an amazing program, you know, and I log into one of my meetings or I go to one face-to-face -face here. I get that calm and I know I'm in the right place and I know I'm doing the right thing. I do kind of yeah. laugh that the bank doesn't quite understand it in the same way. But. <laughs> well, you know what they say, God, God makes it possible that an empty wallet is a vessel to be filled, you know? And so <laughs> that's quite remarkable. Everything you've just said speaks very highly to the, the working of a good program and its outcome in one's personal and professional life. The, the fact that you could be going through what you're going through, but having a sponsor who is as clear-headed and as passionate for AA as you are probably makes all the difference in the world when it comes to you making decisions because you have somebody whom you can discuss those decisions with and get some good objective feedback, good orderly direction, right? Yeah. I mean, 
she's amazing and, you know, pushes me and stands by me. And, you know, we say our higher powers come to us in all sorts of messages. And I definitely know a lot of them, you know, comes from, from my sponsor. Um, and there's that trust that, you know, I, I listen to, sometimes I'm a bit stubborn with what she says, but I definitely, you know, I accept it. Um, this morning she said, you know, why don't you read upon awakening? And I was like, you know, I've memorized that in my first three years of sobriety. Yeah, I don't need to do that again. Um, and then I read it and I was like, oh, God, you know, it's just, you know, that, you know, that those moments of inspiration will come when I truly embrace humility and I truly turn things over to my higher power. That's when they're going to come. Um, I'm not feeling inspired all the time right now. But, you know, when I pick up these readings, I'm immediately back in that safe space. It's so good to hear you talk about the effect of more meetings and a stronger relationship with your sponsor and the importance of reading and understanding what it's saying in the big book, the importance of having that connection with a higher power. Everything you're talking about goes to demonstrate a really well-worked program. You sound like one whose sobriety is in pretty strong shape right now, but with the awareness that it needn't always be that way if you don't keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, I'm scared. I don't want I don't I hear stories, you know, of of relapse and I know how my my brain is. Um I don't want to go back there. One fear recently is there's a there's a meeting in Nairobi, um face to face and and there's a woman who she's she's relapsed just before her 7th anniversary twice. Oh. And she's like, there's something with the number seven or something. And so that's kind of put a bit of fear into me as well, along with the economic insecurity and other things. But what I know is that if I just stay really close to the program, um, those fears can be eased. Like four hours ago, I might have been ranting and raving, but I know, and there's my sponsor going, just do that next right thing. Just do that next right thing. I mean, just even sitting down and reading one of the stories in the back of the big book, I find that mm -hmm. just so grounding. And I had to rely on those things in my early sobriety because where I was in West Africa, um, there was really bad internet connection and there was absolutely no face-to-face -face meetings. And it was pre-COVID, mm. so we didn't have all the Zoom. But there was a thing called In the Rooms where it's pretty much one of my big home groups, an amazing mm -hmm. place. Um, and then it would be, but sometimes the internet wouldn't work. Um and mm. so I would just sit and read the stories in the back of the big book. And that would mm. keep me grounded. Um, just, yeah, listening to somebody hearing or not even hearing. And I didn't even have that great app then. It's just reading it. Um, I mean, the tools do work. In the beginning, I thought the language old fashioned and all that stuff. But when I kept hearing descriptions of myself, I finally just said, OK, I accept this. <laughs> I get that. One one of the most gratifying things about doing the, this podcast for me has been that over the last three years, three plus years that I've been doing it, I've gotten feedback from time to time from people saying, you know, I was feeling a certain way and I wasn't quite sure which direction to go. And then sure enough, I just at random put on one of the interviews and the exact same thing I'm going through is what they were talking about in that particular interview. Of all the interviews I could have chosen, that was the one I chose. And wow, isn't that amazing how God puts the right things in our lives at the right time that we need to hear or do? And so when, when I hear you talking about all the the things that you are doing as a sober woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I, I honor the quality of your sobriety right now, albeit with any of the difficulties and insecurities and everything else that we all face every single day. The fact that you're able to do it with such enthusiasm to me says a lot for a program is well worked. So I laud you on that and think that it makes a big difference for people listening to hear how it can be done. And that it's worth doing. I mean, it's um, my favorite um, quote or sentence right now. I think it's page 275. It's the Keys of the Kingdom story. And it talks about um, it, it being a way of life. But it also says it's for limitless expansion. And somebody like me that's impatient and constantly trying to you know, do more and do better and solve the world's problems, etc. The fact that it's not stagnant um, and I get to learn and grow every day. I mean, that, that definitely keeps me coming back. 
Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine it does, and I think it's it's something that other people, when they see it, when they hear it, when they uh, watch you demonstrating it on a daily basis, uh, it gives them that much more hope for their own programs. Well, I want to thank you for doing this, Cassie, and uh, I, I hope that uh, the words that you've spoken today will be uh, helpful to others who hear them and that it was a great opportunity for us to get to meet and know each other. It was great. And thank you for doing this and making these podcasts available. We're going to need to get you out to Kenya now. I wish you well in all your endeavors. And again, many, many thanks for doing this. All right. Thank you so much. It was really, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. So thank you. Good. good. I did too. Thanks again so much. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Cassie M., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed the interviews in this podcast series, please share it with others. This show is another helping hand of AA we can extend to alcoholics everywhere. If you want to contact me directly with any comments, questions, or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. Please also take a minute to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.